Welcome to the On the Economy Podcast. I'm Jared Bernstein. I'm Ben Spielberg. You were Ben Spielberg. Well, you are Ben Spielberg, but the punchline here is that Ben is leaving the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which makes me incredibly sad, but also excited for what he's doing next. And we'll talk about the implications for the On the Economy podcast in a second. But first, tell us what your next step is, Ben. So it's also a bittersweet moment for me because I've absolutely loved working with you, Jared, over the last few years. It's been an incredible experience and I've learned a ton. I'm going to try not to get too sentimental. Yeah. I don't want to make you too uncomfortable, yeah. but it's really been a phenomenal experience. So I will miss that a lot, but I'm excited that we'll still be able to stay in touch. I'll still absolutely. be in the area. Mm-hmm. I am going to work as campaign manager for a guy named Mark Elrich, who is running for county executive in Montgomery County, which is a little over a million person county right near D.C. Does everybody know what a county executive does? It's kind of analogous to a mayor of a city in the way that it functions, so you should think of it in that context. And Montgomery County, or MoCo as we call it around here, is a large county. Whoever is the next county executive will have a lot of big decisions to make, so I'm very excited about the opportunity to be a part of that campaign. Now, I should say the center is a 501c3 organization, so I will not say anything more about what that will look like here, but it is something that's exciting and it's an opportunity for me to try a different aspect of what impacts the policy world. Well, that's actually what I wanted to spend the next few minutes talking about today. I want to devote our last podcast episode together to interviewing Ben. As you've heard, we've worked together for years and have developed not only a mutual respect, but lots of areas of agreement and some of disagreement. So I thought I'd spend the next few minutes asking you piercing, probing questions, just having you down here for posterity before you leave. That seems like a fitting end to season one of the On the Economy podcast. I do have to ask, though, Jared, we are going to do a musical interlude before we get into the meat of that interview, right? We've been listening to jazz and pop. I want to get back to my classical roots for a minute here and play a little bit of one of my favorite Haydn cello concertos, a performance that I recently stumbled on on YouTube that I think people will really enjoy. So here's a few bars of that. Okay, we're back, and in our bittersweet season one finale here, I'm interviewing my partner, Ben Spielberg. So Ben, over the years we've worked together, we've shared some skepticism about much economic thinking and assumptions. I think one of the themes of this podcast has been that. But I'd say you're more skeptical of many of the tenets of economics than I am. I thought it'd be interesting for you to hold forth a little bit on what are your least favorite things about standard economic analysis? Well, I love this question. I will say <laughs> it's unfortunate to some extent that we usually cap these episodes you, we at have 20 other, to 30 I was going to say, we have other questions, so yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, I could talk about this for quite some time, yeah. but if I had to identify a few things, I would highlight three in particular. The first one for me is the use of very simple models that are just totally divorced from the real world is something that really gets under my skin a lot. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The second one is the use of broad terms like the economy or mm. aggregate statistics to try to describe what's impacting real people's lives. When they L- don't let me pause on that for a second. It resonates with me because I often get this question from reporters 
how's the economy doing? And my first thought is, well, whose economy are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. And I think you do a great job with that. And it's something that I wish more economists hammered. And then the third thing that I would mention is this view that some economists have that it's kind of an objective science and that there's a positive approach to what they do. Positive meaning? Positive meaning, descriptive, divorced from any value judgments. Uh And that's different from the normative concerns or the value-laden concerns other people will bring in. I think that's totally false. What do you think are the values of contemporary economics? So I think contemporary economics typically privileges efficiency above all else and it's a very narrow conception of efficiency that again is about the aggregate economy that doesn't really mean a lot to most people. Can you bring it down to cases? Can you think of a particular debate that our listeners might be able to relate to where this became clear? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think in Econ 101, generally when you learn about market interventions like a minimum wage, for example, and you look at a supply and demand model, you're taught how the minimum wage in a competitive market leads to what's called deadweight loss because there's a mismatch between the supply of labor and the demand for labor. And again, that's very divorced from the real world. Deadweight loss is the amorphous concept that is used to suggest that the minimum wage is inefficient when the reality, when you take a look at that policy, is it's actually a great policy that does a lot for very many people who really need money. You're right. We could spend our whole time talking about this, and there's other things I want to ask you about. But on the modeling point, economists like to say, and I guess I've always felt there was some truth to this, that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. You're absolutely right that they're vast simplifications of a complex reality, but sometimes breaking down that reality can be useful. So for example, I have a model in my head where low unemployment corresponds to faster earnings growth. By the way, that's not always the case, so I don't mean to imply that that always holds. But I do think that there are some simple, I don't know if model's the right word, but relationships in economics that are germane. Yeah, I don't think that's wrong. And to go back to supply and demand, I think that's a very useful concept to apply to certain markets. I think the problem is it's often taught in this framework, and I think a lot of economists apply it in this framework, where that's the law. Mm -hmm. And it's an economic law. It's a fact. That's how things work. And again, it's divorced from how things actually work on the ground. The whole concept of power is taken out of the model completely. There are various ways in which markets are not competitive that are taken out of the models completely. And the other thing I think that is a real blind spot for economists, economists just assume people are something they're not. We're all rational actors who are only motivated by economic incentives. The fact of the matter is that's just not true. So while you're certainly right, all models are wrong, some are useful, and there is utility to some of the models economists use, my frustration with the economics field as a discipline is I think a lot of people treat it like a set of facts that nobody in their right mind could possibly question, and they're much more legitimate than the opinions of people who want to challenge different aspects of them. Yes, I have many anecdotes that would support that observation. I recall once testifying in the Senate, and one of the witnesses, an economist, said, if you don't believe the growth effects, and he was selling large, unrealistic growth effects to tax cuts, if you don't believe the growth effects, you're a science denier. And this was to our Senate. My first thought was, you might insult some of the Republicans because those guys are actual science deniers. It's a problem that's pretty pervasive. I think there is a growing movement in the economics profession to try to be more empirically oriented. Mm. And I do think you're seeing a lot more people with solid instincts on, we really do need to evaluate how these policies are affecting. So interestingly, I may push back a little bit there from your side. The thing that bugs me lately in particular, it was catalyzed in something that Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said the other day. Again, this happened to be about his claim 
that the tax cuts that they're espousing, this really regressive, wasteful tax proposal that they're espousing, would more than pay for itself in growth effects. And what Mnuchin told his interviewers on NBC TV was, I can get many economists to come up here and confirm that statement. And in Washington, D.C., I guarantee you that's true. So another problem with economics, and of course it's not just economics, I mean law, lots of these top-level occupations as practiced in D.C. today, is that you can get an economist to give you whatever answer you want. For me, it goes back to the core insight that if people are leaving out the differential power that people have in the economy, or coming up with a complex way of explaining how doing something for rich people is actually good for poor people, usually you should stop listening. Yes. My only addendum to that would be if they don't have data, empirical numbers that were rigorously crunched also quickly walk away. (laughs) Okay, moving on. You and I share many of the same goals. We want to see a just economy that gives everybody the opportunities that they deserve and that they need. But as we've often observed here in this podcast, I'm more path dependent than you are, more of an incrementalist, perhaps suffering a bit more from status quo bias. But tell me how you think I'm wrong about that, if that's the case. I think that's a good question. It is a critique I have of a lot of the D.C. policy space that path dependency and incrementalism tend to be something that people adhere to a lot too much. It seems to me almost like just the statement that change is hard, which I agree with. Change is definitely hard. And I think if you want to do anything good, you certainly are going to get opposition from entrenched interests that don't want those good things to happen. What I've never really understood about the argument for incrementalism or path dependency is why we would start out from a place where we're saying, okay, we think that there are forces marshaled against us, so let's ask for something, let's advocate for something that's not as good as what we actually want or what we actually think needs to happen in the world. Because to me, then you've already lost. Why not try to take on those interests? I think it's really important, and this is the part about maybe your path dependency that I appreciate and I think is really valuable. It's really important to think through the steps and the path to get from here to where we want to go. And I think that that's absolutely something we need to do. But I just don't understand why we would shoot for something less than where we actually want to go. Yeah, it's a good way of framing it up. It's almost like you're overthinking the opposition to the point where you stifle yourself. Again, I think concreteness is helpful here. So we talked about this a little bit in the context of single payer. I view some advocates of single-payer, and by the way, I think universal coverage is the correct goal. I view some advocates of single-payer as wanting to leapfrog over a set of constraints that my path dependency would push back against. Talk about that in the context of this conversation from your perspective. Yeah, so one of the reasons I really appreciate discussing single-payer with you, and I think we make a good team in this context, is because I might say we want to get to single-payer, and you might ask some questions about how we're going to get there, but you're always very careful, I think, to highlight the fact that you do actually agree that single-payer is where we need to go, and you're supportive of the advocates who are making the pitch to get the single-payer. You just want to make sure we've thought through how we're going to deal with the obstacles that invariably are going to come up. Yeah, I mean, I've worked for the government, and in fact, I was a member of the Obama administration when we were crafting the Affordable Care Act, and we're not going to litigate that right now, but I have felt firsthand the pressure of stakeholders when it comes to policy creation and assumptions that stakeholders, like the insurance industry or the hospital sector, don't exist, I find to be pretty untenable. 
And I think that's correct, although the area of pushback I would have again is that if you say the hospital industry and the insurance industry exist and we need to defeat them, that's one thing. If you say they exist and therefore there's no way we're ever right. going to get to a system where they are not in the picture, I think that's a whole different thing. And I think some of the frustration that people pushing for big, bold, progressive policies have with the incrementalists is a lot of times they feel like they say, here's the goal, and the incrementalists say, well, here's a problem, and the yeah. advocates say, well, let's address that problem, and the incrementalists say, well, here's another problem. No, and no, it's, it's, see, incrementalism, if you think about it, is actually a description of how you get from here to there incrementally. If incrementalism is instead, here's why we can't do something, it's not incrementalism at all. It's defeatism. Exactly. That's definitely my kind well, of main point We finally of worked that there. out here at the last Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I feel like we have a lot of good discussions along those lines. And there are times when I might want to push further faster than you might be inclined to. And I think the other piece of that, which we've talked about a little bit on this episode, is I think that incrementalism does underweight the downside to the status quo for people who are experiencing really terrible things now. I think what incrementalists sometimes worry about from people like me who advocate for bigger, bolder, faster changes is there's going to be disruptions to the system. There are all these entrenched things we have to worry about, and that's true. But I think when you're advocating for an incrementalist approach, what you're kind of consigning yourself to is the idea that for a lot longer than would otherwise be the case if we try to go really bold really fast, people are going to be suffering more than they might have otherwise needed to. That's important. One might conclude from that point that those who are overly incrementalist need a real shot of the urgency behind the kinds of causes that they're advocating for. Next, I wanted to talk a little bit about policy and the policy process. And I'm multiples of your age, but that said, I've learned a few good lessons from you over the years. And one that I learned, you often say that the average of a good policy and a bad policy is not an okay policy. It's actually kind of a pretty bad policy. I've always found that to be important and useful, especially in a time when lots of people are pushing for getting back to compromise and the bipartisanship. And I definitely think there's value in compromise and bipartisanship. Don't get me wrong. But say a little bit about that averaging problem that I think plagues a lot of people in this field. Sure. Well, the first thing I'll say is I, again, have learned a ton from you, too. And what you said that the average of a good policy and a bad policy is generally a pretty bad policy, I actually credit to you taking kind of a longer point that I made and making it something digestible for the general public. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> My pleasure. In terms of saying a little bit more about that, I do think one of the problems with how we categorize political viewpoints in this country, and especially in Washington, D.C., is we say there's a conservative view and there's a progressive view. There's a left and there's a right. And when you do that, Neither of those things implies that the left or the right is more correct or the conservative or the progressive is more correct. And so it creates the situation where people think there's a linear spectrum that runs from left to right, and each side of that spectrum is kind of equivalently good or bad, and therefore kind of what's reasonable seems to reside somewhere in the middle, which is actually completely wrong because it assumes that there's no kind of objective way of identifying what policies are better than others. And so my thinking is that there's actually a set of values, a set of priorities, that people generally agree are more ethical than others. And then there's also real facts, true things are better than false things or things that are not true. And so my thinking is that we really need to reject this concept of left-right spectrum and the middle is where you want to get. Where we want to get is to good policy. And that means ethical policy that looks out for the people who are least well off amongst us. 
And to do that, we have to attend to the facts about what will actually help those people. Okay, here's another place where we probably need an example. Let's talk about immigration policy. Take Donald Trump at the far right or wherever you put him on the spectrum saying we have to round up all the immigrants and jail them or get them the heck out of here as quick as we can. And then on the left, you have Bernie Sanders with a much more inclusive view. This is back in the campaign. And so someone might say, well, okay, the middle ground is to round up some of them or deport some of them, but allow some others to come in. And I suspect you'd say averaging out those two doesn't give you a good policy. Exactly. A good policy in that case is the inclusive immigration policy. We had an entire podcast episode about this. You want to make sure that you're welcoming people here, not just because it makes economic and fiscal sense, which it does, but most importantly, because it's just the right thing to do. And it's the value that we should have as a society to be welcoming towards people who come here. So suppose the idea of averaging a good policy and a bad policy gets you not a great policy, but gets you a policy that could pass legislative muster, that could get the votes. Is it still not the right way to go? So I'm a really firm believer, and I think actually the defeats of some of the Republican health care bills recently have shown that activism, social movements can really help and work, and not just in terms of which politicians you put into office, but also in terms of once politicians are there, make them scared. Make them know that people feel differently about something than their donors do and what they're trying to do. So resistance isn't futile. Resistance is not futile. I think we have the opportunity to change things. I mean, look, I wouldn't do the work that I do. I don't think you would do the work that you do if we felt like it didn't mean anything. Definitely. And I want to lose this point that we kind of blew by there, which is that if you decide out of the gate that your policy advance is impossible, then it is impossible. You go back to the Wayne Gretzky quote, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So you might lose (laughs) some battles if you advocate for things that are really, really bold and great. But you're going to win some, too. And like you said, you can't win if you don't try. You've seen me play basketball, and I miss about 97% of the shots that I do take. One of your perennial (laughs) issues with basketball is that you don't give yourself enough credit for your hook shot, which is incredible. So I'd say that's like a 70% success rate around That's that's some old school stuff right there. you got to work on your jumper, but (laughs) it's all right. Well, thank you. So just winding down here, I think you came to D.C. pretty shortly before we started working together, Lo, these many years ago. Did anything that you've seen here in D.C. surprise you? I remember once I dragged you to some testimony I was giving on the Hill, and you had a pretty negative reaction that I thought was interesting. Can you remember that? If I remember correctly, I think I said I don't understand the purpose of these hearings because (laughs) they have one person, a Republican, give a prepared speech for five minutes. A Democrat doesn't acknowledge anything the Republican said, gives a prepared speech for five minutes. And then there's a back and forth with representatives who weren't in the room when other people were talking who come in and ask their own witnesses the questions they want to ask. There's no real discussion among people about what the actual issue is or how to make the policy better. It's just kind of a show of political theater. But I also remember that somebody said something that was patently false something about the debt or the deficit. And because of the structure of the thing that you just described, he was never corrected. Right. And there's really kind of no fact-checking. There's a big problem, I think, with just the structure of how we do debates and political... What about uh, anything else in D.C. that's kind of taken you by surprise? Or Well, you know what I tell people always when I talk about what's interesting about being in D.C., and I think that this is a cool experience to have because I am really interested in politics and policy. It's really the only place I've ever been where you could walk into a bar and there's a bunch of sports games going on and people will be like, shut up, shut up, everybody needs to be quiet, we've got to listen to the presidential debate. And it's not even the main presidential debate, it's one of the early primary debates. You bring back an old memory of mine. I moved here from New York City decades ago 
and I went to a party about a week after I got here and I was trying to find a conversation that I could fit into and I went and stood next to this group of people and it turned out they were literally talking about the formula for food stamps allotment. <laughs> and I was like, man, where have I landed? Only in D.C. Yeah, well, so thing that I was going to say, I don't know if I would say this necessarily surprised me a ton, but I do think that some of my policy, political calculus around how to make change has been reinforced to some extent by being here because I do think that One, there's a lot more popular support, even in institutions that are not big on change from staffers or some of the bolder changes that we advocate for. And two, I do think that being on the Hill, going through these spaces, I kind of get the sense these people are beatable. We can advance this agenda because we do have the facts on our side. That brings me to my very last question very nicely, which is harking back to our first podcast. So kind of completing the circle here. Remember, it was talking about how to find the road back to Factville. And I wonder if you have any further or final reflections. What are your thoughts these days about how we find our way back to Factville? So I would encourage everybody to go back to listen to our first ever episode, like you said, because we laid out some principles in that episode for how to do it. And I think I would just hammer home those principles to some extent. It would be really try to avoid both sidesism. Equal debate is not having the left and the right view. It's kind of taking a look at what the values are that you're trying to accomplish and what the evidence says, and then structuring the debate around those two things, fostering and supporting social movements that can help get the facts and the information that you need to people who need to hear it. Mobilizing that community, I think, is incredibly important. And besides that, I would just say having some optimism, not giving up, making sure that you are, again, charting a path from here to there, but not allowing yourself to be discouraged by the state of the current debate and acknowledging that we have the opportunity to change Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Well, look, before I say officially goodbye to you here on the air, let me tell listeners that although Ben won't be sitting here next to me, I am going to try to do something a little bit new with the On the Economy podcast. I'm going to try every day or few days to give a short daily take on something that I think is interesting, important in the economy. And this could be two minutes, it could be three minutes, some days it may be zero minutes, but it's going to be kind of a daily economic observation from yours truly. So we'll see how that plays out. In saying goodbye on the air to Ben here, let me say that I'm not Mozart, because Mozart was a genius and I'm nowhere close. But it is said that when Mozart heard Beethoven play, he said prophetically, that boy's going to make a loud noise someday. And he was right. So as you go forth, I know we, the people listening to this, and all of the folks out there who depend on progressive policy that actually delivers economic justice have not heard anything like the last of you. So it was great putting this podcast together with you and best of luck. Thank you so much, Jared. And again, I promise not to get too sentimental, but I just want to say thank you for everything. I mean, I've learned so much economics from you and statistics and just a ton about the vast array of policy issues that you comment on and cover. But what's really been most valuable to me has been your sense of justice in the policy world and your compassion and kindness on a personal level. And I'm just really happy that I've had the opportunity to work with you and to be a friend of yours. And for this week, that's On the Economy.